coming up on See Here Love. So growing up as a teenager, the whole thing about calling was so spoken over people's lives all the time. What you're called to, what you're called to, what you're called to. And then we kind of identify that calling with our career. And then that becomes one and the same. Mm-hmm. And we don't know necessarily who we are outside of that calling slash career. Welcome to See Here Love. Matt, it's great to have you back. Hello, with us. Mel. Great to be here. Woo! It's our men's panel. Always love hanging out with the guys. Learn so much. And especially for this topic, let's just jump right into it. You came to me with this topic. Yep. Every time I've been out with friends, they're like, oh, my husband needs to watch this show or listen to the show mm. because it has something to do about work and identity. Yeah. Why'd you bring it? I'm not. I'm, just, I'm kind of like teasing it. But why did you say? This yeah, is well, what I, we I don't think about. it's like an exclusively like true men's thing. Yes, true. However, I do think that there is the potential for guys to identify our sense of, you know, find our sense of identity and value in what we do, career-wise. We tend to link those things, right? Which is not always bad, but when that's our so- our, our sole source of identity, then I think it sets us up for. Uh, potential problems and pitfalls okay. when work changes or we're out of work or things aren't going the way we want then all of a sudden that puts pressure on well then who are we and where is our source of value right okay this is good welcome art and chris too to the show it's good to see you guys hey hey, hey. yeah great to be here yeah it's good so okay let me start off with this question and then we're gonna go and drill right down into the topic so when you first meet somebody you always ask them their name and then you say Mm-hmm. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why don't we start with, who are you? What do you love? Right. But we always ask, what do you do right off the top? Um, give me some insight. Why do we do that? Art, why is that our first thing when we meet somebody? Well, first off, uh, I never answer that question in the <laughs> typical way. So whenever someone asks me, hey, what, what is it you do? I tell them I drink coffee and I hang out with people. Yes. <laughs> that's what I that's what I tell them. I don't give them a title or a role. But and and it's it is it's a it you marked it right there, uh, Matt. I think it's it's an identifier. It's something that uh, puts us in a place of belonging. And we like that little box that's safe. And uh, especially if we like our role <laughs> and our title, right? If you're ashamed of it or if you're unemployed, you might not say that, right? Right. Yeah. So Okay. Chris, what about you? What do you do, Chris? Well, I I kind of bypassed the the question. I'll, I'll ask because I'm cheeky, so I'll say, "Well, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do?" <clears throat> Be, well, and I think we do that because that's something that's just been passed down to us. Yeah. Um, before we want to get to know somebody, we kind of categorize them based on what it is that they do, and they're like, "Okay, well, this is how I know how far or how great this this." relationship will go because it's a marker well if they're a business person well i'll talk with them about this but if they're they do a trade i'll talk to them about this and so Ah. we naturally have done it because this is what our parents did and their parents did and so we don't know any better so we ask the same question yeah and it's not necessarily a bad thing right like we're when we're meeting a new person we're just trying to get a sense on who they are and like you said chris we're looking for jump off points to continue the conversation and to know how to get to know them so it's normal and natural, right. and we all do it, 
but but there's that potential to link then who they are with what, with they, what they do. And that's exactly why I love this topic today, you guys, because it's our work is not our identity. And every time I say it, people go, <gasps> that's a spicy topic. So I'm going to be in a listening posture all the next five hours of the show because <laughs> it, it, it seems that you need this kind of amount of time. Yeah. And, you know, Matt, I know you've got a lot of questions because I want to really listen and go, why is men's value so tied into work and I and the dangers of it and then what we can do to say actually that is not who we are completely there's other values and things that we can identify yeah. as so I yeah. want to listen yeah cool so Art let me start with you why do you think then work is such a big part of our identity as men how do we get there how did that happen well not just men I, I think but uh, definitely it's it's a big part of our day we we, we wake up, I wake up on my calendar according to my work schedule. Hmm. And then I, I spend eight hours plus a day at work. And that's my sole identity in many ways. That's who I am. My waking hours, I am this person. And then I go home and I relax and I, I get to do whatever I do. And I go to bed for another eight hours or whatever it is that people get these days, six. <laughs> and But the majority of who you are in your waking hours is encapsulated around this work identity, right? Right. How about you, Chris? What do you think? I think that we have this... So growing up as a teenager, the whole thing about calling was so spoken over people's lives all the time. What you're called to, what you're called to, what you're called to. And then we kind of identify that calling with our career. And then that becomes one and the same. Mm -hmm. And we don't know necessarily who we are outside of that calling slash career, because for us, the Venn diagram is one on top of the other one, as opposed to calling feeds into your career and vice versa. And so, you know, Art said it, like we spend the bulk of our time at work. But if our motivation is that I do this, this is my job, this is who I am, then everything else becomes frivolous. Everything else becomes activity. So being a father, being a husband, being a friend, being a reader, being a Netflix watcher, mm. as opposed to all the things that inform mm. what sort of job we have and what sort of work we do. So I think it's I think what ends up happening is we've got them jumbled, but it's not our fault. This has just been passed down to us for years and years and years. Huh. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point where we might... Um, talk about career and get that, you know, use the word work or career interchangeably with the word vocation. Okay. And sometimes I think we mix those up. So a work or a career can be what we do to financially provide for ourselves, whereas vocation is a sense of identity and calling of who we're supposed to be and living fully into that. Mm. And I guess one thing is it's beautiful when those things overlap, like you said. If our work and our career happens to also be our sense of vocation and calling, then we're in a beautiful, privileged place. Yes. But when they're not, I think sometimes we struggle with what that looks like then. Art, and I'm, and I'm, and just saying, I'm glad you acknowledge that because we are in places of privilege and that a lot of even my friends and yeah. your friends are in that, you know, my calling and vocation are the same. And we actually say that to next generation, you know, do what you love, work at the work that you love. But right. there are so many people that are doing jobs that they might not love, but they need to survive and, and pay the bills. Yeah. And so we don't want to exclude that and think, oh, that's less. It's like, no, this is the work that you have. You're doing a good work of providing for your family. 
but it might not be exactly what you love. Right. And I think just to acknowledge that and speak that is important because we have created a culture where it's like, no, 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 only do work that you absolutely love and that's all you should do. And if you don't do that, it feels like you've failed. Yes, but I want to change that because I think that's really put people, and even I think myself, that I have done that and spoken that over people and I need to... I'm just having a moment here. Yeah, no, it's going, good. I got to think about that and how I reframe some things. Yeah. It's good. So, Art, let's, let's move to the potential uh, dangers or pitfalls that come when we link uh, work and identity. What would you say to that? Yeah, and Chris mentioned it earlier, too, is, is the danger is that you, you've kind of pigeon your, pigeonhole yourself into one thing. Mm. Mm. And then if you fail at that thing, it, it completely re-identifies your value. And that's not true. I think we need to understand that we're more than uh, just that label. And with, we are complex people. We're made up of so many parts. Mm. Maybe uh, what you actually are known for is if you can think of a eulogy, when you die, are they going to just say, oh, that guy, he was our marketing manager or whatever, <laughs> right? It was, oh, that's great. But what else was he? Right. And so, oh, he, he was the, the, the nicest guy on our floor. That guy always brought us donuts. That guy always brought us a smile. Whenever I felt uh, nervous or lonely or stressed, that guy's smile did something to me, right? So the, the complexity of our calling mm. also might be more than just what we do, but ushering in this presence of God in every avenue, everything that we do, mm. everything that we don't even say, everything that we don't, don't even recognize, the minute things that we do, might add into someone's life and we don't even know it. But the simplicity of bringing Christ with you in your attitude, in, mm -hmm. in, in what, you, what you wear on your countenance, on your face, right? Yeah. That's their stuff. That should be your identifiers, right? As, your, as a representative of Christ, mm -hmm. as his son, as God's son, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's really good. So Chris, let me, let me jump to this then. How, do, how would we then determine what success looks like? Oh. Well, obviously, for one, it's different for everybody. Right. I know for me, you know, the success is when I come home, are my, is my family happy to see me? Right. It, that might sound like so simplistic, but really, at the end of the day, you know, our the perfect thing about the eulogy, the people who are going to know you the most are the people that you spend the most time with. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so does my, well, my family, when somebody says he was so kind to us at work and my kids are like, my dad was the worst. That's <laughs> not, right? We wanted him to spend more time at work and less time with us. That's not successful. But I think, you know, but in terms of, of our, of our job, of our work, when it comes to success is, are you, are you happy every day to be doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Are, are, are people, are people also happy that you're there with them? Mm. Um, are, are, do you feel uh, a sense of fulfillment? And if you ever left that space, do you do you know that you've done as best you can? And people are happy when you come back to visit. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. for me success. Like if you and you come back and you come to visit them, are they like, yeah, it's you? Are they like, oh, he still has a swipe card? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. <laughs> so to, to, to find those moments of success where, because you know, you can make a, a lot of money and people hate you. You can you can be the greatest speaker and people not want to be around you. All these sort of things, but you're, it's the people stuff that make that success. Mm, Do people yeah. enjoy, you know, enjoy being around people? Yeah, the character pieces is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts, Matt? Just quickly, like what when you're hearing this, 
the dangers, um, mm -hmm. value, what are your thoughts? Well, we tend to elevate certain kinds of uh, careers as being more important. And so if you're in that, you, I think, can have a false sense of a puffed up identity. Not always, but it can feel mm -hmm. that way. Well, those who maybe aren't doing such um, glamorous type roles can feel inferior. And I just think that's not cr a not correct way to look at it. Yeah. Um, because that all crumbles down when we maybe lose our job or get transitioned or have to retire. And then all of a sudden, when we've linked ourselves so directly with what we do professionally, then we kind of have a crisis moment. So who are we really yeah. at the end of the day? It's good. Thanks, Matt. I loved that, that answer. And I'm glad that we're going to continue this conversation about now trying to find our value in Jesus and not our identity fully in work. Okay. Uh, interesting thing about me. I don't know if you guys knew this, but I love cold case files. <laughs> I don't know if I like, it's like, not that I love murder, but I love the cold case files because even 30 years later, there's justice and redemption for the family. And anyway, I love it. And so it makes sense that our special guest today is Detective J. Warner Wallace. He is a cold case homicide detective, Christian apologist, national speaker, and author. And I sat down to talk with him about his struggle in his own identity at work, because he was so known as a detective right. that when he ended that role, he had to figure out who he was. And so I talked to him about his journey in finding true value in Jesus. Here's my conversation. Well, I am thrilled to have this conversation with Jim Warner Wallace on See Here Love. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so let's start off with part one, I would say, of this, is work is not your identity. Uh, talk to, let's start off with, how did that come about when you've got this, you know, you're a cold case homicide detective in the police force, and yet... You said, and I quote, that you called it an error that as years of working as a detective, uh, when you finally left, you completely found your identity was in your work and that, yikes, you realized that that wasn't, that wasn't going to hold up. So for me, one thing that was helpful was that I followed my dad into a career in which he was at the agency before I was. He was there for about 28 years. He had wow. worked as a detective. Uh, some of the cases that I reopened as a cold case detective were cases that he started. So I, I walked in behind him and I thought of him as legendary. Even as a kid, mm -hmm. I thought of my dad through his identity as a police officer, as a detective. And so I even accepted that. And so when mm -hmm. I got to the job and I realized within about four or five years, people would meet me I was the son of Jim Wallace. But people, within four or five years, people would meet me and say, oh, your dad used to work here? I'm like, well, he was a legend here. Mm -hmm. Well, to me he was. Mm -hmm. But I realized that not so much so to an agency in which every one of us, by design in a paramilitary organization, are absolutely replaceable. As a matter of fact, mm. I think for guys, it's hard to realize that, that you are really replaceable in every sphere of your life, except for your family's sphere, and except mm -hmm. for in the eyes of God. Mm -hmm. Everything else, I, and so I realized pretty quickly, like I, I probably should not invest too much of my identity in this job, given that my dad did for 28 years and four years later, no one can remember him because they've all, re his generation all retired. Yeah. And so at some point I realized I shouldn't, do, but you cannot help yourself. And this is the struggle, right? One of the struggles is to try to, and I guess I realized that for my last day on the job, I worked a shift in patrol 
I was not working patrol at the time. I was working cold case homicides. I had not been in a uniform in years. Mm -hmm. But I asked my sergeant to let me go back in a uniform for one day to ride with my son, whose pictures are behind me here as well, who's also in the job. He was working patrol. And so we got a chance to work together. And when I drove off the compound on that day, it hit me because Mm -hmm. I realized that Jimmy, my son, uh, was an is. He is a police officer. And I realized driving off that I was now a was. I was a police officer. And that, for a lot of us as men, is a hard... So what the question is, and I always tell people when you retire, just make sure you don't retire from something, that you retire to something. And if you're a Christian, you actually are already in that that role. You already are in Christ. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is is just trying to balance those things. And I think, I think I can talk about this all I want, but in the end, as we experience this as humans, that's when we really learn it. So much, Jim, so much. Let's finish with this, um, if I can, if you can't even say. Cold case case. <laughs> Cold case case. Um, can you tell me just, you don't have to go so long, but just most compelling, uh, most personally fulfilling case that you solved that you were like, Yes. I've written a lot about the cases I've worked. You know, cold cases are just unsolved murders because everything yeah. else has a statute of limitations. So if you do a robbery, you do a burglary, these kinds of cases eventually close, even if you can't mm-hmm. solve them, because there's only a certain amount of time in which I can investigate those. But right. murders stay open forever, so I can go back 50 years later. And I've got some from my dad's generation. Just, we saw, just solved one uh, night in 2019 from 1972. Wow. So, you know, wow. he solved it with, yeah, ancestry DNA. It's the first case I've ever had that we solved with DNA. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so there's times when you, it's really satisfying. Now, remember, this we use this word called closure. I don't think there's such a thing as closure. Um, but there are at times um, opportunities for forgiveness, though, and redemption. doesn't happen all the time, though. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed is that when families feel like um, if, if, if they convict, if we convict somebody, uh, doesn't necessarily mean the family's going to feel better about it, right. or like, wow, it's not going to bring your daughter back for sure. And and if the person who does this never even acknowledges having done it, it's going to feel like an empty victory for the most people. You can mm-hmm. say, well, we got justice, and that's my goal is to get. I can't always get closure, but I can get justice. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, what we reco- I think when people confess to it, though, and this happens, I've seen it happen where somebody will finally confess to this and seek the forgiveness of the family. And that family could have been so mad for all these years. They have been just bad-mouthing that suspect all these years. They hated yeah. him, what he did to their family. But when he comes back in a position of repentance, in a position of, of seeking forgiveness, I have yet to see a family not utterly change hmm. in the light of somebody who is now acknowledging what they did. Yeah. especially if you get somebody who's like on a death row case or on a case without the possibility of parole. If you think that this, the potential for parole is motivating the confession, that kind of does change things. But if there's nothing in it for you, yet you simply want to confess to the family, that does have a healing power that's unseen in other cases. So, I, so I've had a few cases where you know I've, I've written books on my cases, but the next book I'm going to write will involve the most compelling case for me personally. Okay. And a lot of those are just cases where you see transformation in mm-hmm. the victim's family as a result of the case finally going to trial. Even, even in that case, we didn't have anybody who ever confessed to it. So the suspect never confessed to it. So that was unsatisfying, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But there was just a sense in which, okay, I can now – 
move on. For years, I was just trying to get someone interested in investigating the case. And that possessed our family, possessed me personally, yeah, yeah. let's say. Yeah. And then once you finally convince somebody to work it, that part at least you can release. And then you have time in your thought space. You know, that's why I say that's not an unlimited shelf life, right? You you push things in your head and those push things off the end of the shelf. But now that that's no longer on the shelf, they found that they had space bandwidth, emotional bandwidth to do all kinds of other things that they weren't able to do beforehand. So that's nice to see. And then you kind of see that, and if, of course, if you can uh, along the way, show us a uh, victim's family that God has been working in this all along. Because they don't only get a chance to have those kinds of conversations. Not every family is, it will, sometimes families will initiate the conversation about mm -hmm. Jesus with you. But if they don't, I, I want to respect the privacy of families and I don't want to overstep my boundaries as a detective. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that time, you know, you don't get the kind of results you would if these people were, were uh, Christ followers who identified, saw that the work, of, saw the work of God even in a case like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I will say this because I've been watching Cold Case Files for a while. I have been compelled many times to pray for the homicide detectives. I honestly, I've sat there and I'm like, he needs some prayer. I think he needs some protection. I want to pray over his family. And I know, you know, I know people are like, but I, I really, there have been moments I've like this detective, that family, I prayed. And, you know, I, cause I've always felt that Jim where, you know, as God's working and moving and he'll, he'll put those thoughts and whisper thoughts or an impression, like pray for them. And so I have prayed for many a police officer and detective over this while in, in protecting their hearts and minds, uh, their families, that they're supported by community, that their community churches will pray for these people. And I think you're right. I think some of the stories have been deeply sad in that, you know, for some families, you know, they wanted justice and, and the perpetrator um, had, had died 20 years before. Right. And so that was sad. But the ones I've, I've really been encouraged have been families who said, all we wanted was just somebody to take the case up again. Somebody right. to remember our, our daughter, our sister, our friend. And yeah. and I think that's that part for me in the storyline of the cold cases is the is sort of this redemptive part of, of God using people not to forget. Like twenty five years later, you know, this young guy will say, You know, this happened when I was five years old, I know it impacted my community and then I get the honor of twenty years later, you know, to then work on this. And yeah. I just was like, Yeah <laughs> So yeah, there's no, so much true. about these these stories that yeah, there's, yeah, I, I, and I love them. I mean, some people are like, really? I'm like, yeah, because if you go deeper, there's so much about relationship and connection and remembering and all kinds of things. So anyway. Yeah, no, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. And, there, and there's times too when you do these kinds of cases where you feel like you're, you're working for the victim's family, you know, more yeah, than you're working yeah. for your own agency. Um, and, and there are also times when, when, when officers, not a lot of officers are believers. And that's probably, mm -hmm. you know, that's just the nature of it, uh, that the work can kind of drive that out of you. It either becomes something that it sustains you or it could be something that you reject because of the work. I've seen it both ways. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times, you know, you miss opportunities. If you're working as an officer, you're missing an opportunity to see something bigger if mm -hmm. you are unwilling to entertain the idea that, that you're not alone in this, that God's in this, right? And I think a lot of it is how do I, how do I battle with the notion that there's an all-loving, all-powerful God that would allow these kinds of things to happen in the first place? But let me just say one thing in closing about cold cases. Yes. If there's a family out there that's listening to us right now and you're thinking, I mean, I've got a call. I get, once I do shows, you know, I constantly get emails from people saying, would you take this case? Would you take that case? Of course, the, the local agency is the best agency to work a case. It just is. They have all the resources. They have the right to write search warrants. Mm -hmm. 
that differs state by state. You just can't drop in out of, out of the sky and, and have the kind of authority that your local agency has. Now, the question then becomes, well, why isn't your local agency working the case? So here's what I would say. Be a nuisance. Be a bit of a nuisance. What you want to do is write a letter to the, your local chief, to your local mayor, on the anniversary, just remind yourself, if the anniversary of your loved one is coming up, either the person's birthday or the person's uh, day of the homicide, um, write a letter. Write a quick letter and do that. I've got one case that I worked that it happened in 1979. I don't think we opened it until 2003. And I don't think we got the conviction until 2014. Mm-hmm. So that case, and the reason why we got it, it was, it was a squeaky wheel. That family never forgot. And they can continue to. So when we finally started doing cold cases as an agency and started to reopen our set of thirty or forty of these cases, we thought were worth working. The very first case we looked at was the squeakiest wheel. So be a squeaky wheel for the person you cared about who was who was murdered in the local agency, because they have the most power. And just continue to write. A lot of the reason why they're not working a case is simply because there's no budget within, and the budgets are huge to work cold cases. They just are. That means you're going to take one or two detectives full time, and that's a, not a small price for an agency, especially a smaller agency perhaps, to be able to fund. And you can't do this collaterally. You have to spend time on it full time. So understand that's the kind of the burden that the agency bears. But if you're squeaky, there's a better chance it eventually will get worked. Fantastic. Well, now that's good conversation. We now know a little bit more about you. That's good. It feels like you're scared or something. No, but no. Okay, 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 good, good, good. So, Art, let's talk about maybe what you've learned then in your own journey over the years around identity and value as a follower of Jesus. Can you just share a little bit about your own experience and where, you've, where you're kind of landing now with that? So last time we talked, uh, I was uh, very candid about my burnout, and that was a significant time for me to really restructure my identity. Mm. And at that exact same moment was about when my son was born. And I remember very specifically when my son was born, I looked at this kid, and I had no idea if it was a boy or girl prior to his birth. I looked at him and didn't even recognize him, didn't know who this kid was, and just had this overwhelming love for my son hmm. and that identity was was uh, something that that really uh, took um, a toll in my heart about how much god loves us no matter what we've done no matter if we've done nothing so this restructuring of our identity into who god is and what he thinks of us has been key into my life about discovering who i am outside of my work and my value of things i can do hmm. And Chris, what have you learned then practically about what does it mean to like find a source of identity in Jesus? How have you worked that out? Maybe in terms of priorities, boundaries, what have you discovered kind of in your role as a dad and in your work? I think the first thing is real is realizing that titles are finite and jobs are finite. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine. Uh, he's older than me, and he, when he retired from pastoring, he, he, I remember him telling me, "I've never not been a pastor before," and he didn't know what he didn't know what to do for a little while, and it was a lesson to me to remind myself that like one day all these titles, all these things are not going to be there anymore, mm-hmm. and so it's establishing who you are outside of that that can then feed into whatever job that you're you're doing. And so it's building the identity on the, on the things that actually matter at the end of your life. Right. Who's around? Who's around you, that bed before before you you breathe your last? 
it's not necessarily going to be the person in accounting unless you're really good friends with them. It's going to be your family. It's going to be your close friends. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's developing um, hobbies, it's developing reading that goes outside of what you do. Because one day those things, like no one's going to be a youth pastor forever or a uh, accountant forever. I'm using accountant twice, but those sort of things, you're not going to be those things forever. At some point, you're going to transition and do something different. So what are the things that are going to be the markers? Your markers are going to be your identity in Christ, your, your identity as a, a family or a, a person of family or a friend, and then the things that you that you love. So I've been made I've made sure to make those things, those key, those key moments for my life, recognizing that at any point in time, if we've seen in COVID, jobs can change, spaces can change. And so, but what's going to be the things that last? It's going to be who you are in Christ and who you are to the people closest to you. I love That's that. Really Not love to that. push back on it. I totally agree with you, but my achiever side of me says yes. <laughs> But I still want to do the best I can do in yeah. that work. I want to be yeah. the best on those things so that when, when I'm dead, people are telling stories not just about, like, how I sent emails or something. But, but I also, like, I want to do really well at both. You know, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, oh, for sure, 100%. And I think that yeah, is like, the so struggle the idea... is, like, what do you give your, how do you balance, how do you find the balance in that, to me, is, the, is the yeah. tough stuff. Yeah. How do you? That's a good question. Not, not the, no, and, and just to respond to that, I think the, I think that when you have the, when you have that space of like knowing like your family is first, you have so much more that you want to give to the job that you're in, right? Because there's a joy about being able to go back home at the end of the day and decompress and talk about that stuff, as opposed to making one the priority or the other one the priority, but finding the way that one bleeds into the other, one inspires the other. Yeah. Because for me, like I want to do good at my job because I want to one make the people I work for happy, but also be able to come back to my kids and say, this is what happens when you put hard work in and when you get through tough times and be able to use as teaching moments for them as well. So like I'm an Enneagram nine. And so I never want, I never want to get people to be upset with me. So I, right. I yeah. work extra hard <laughs> just because of that. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but balancing that going like some people, some people are going to be disappointed. So at the end of the day, what can I do? I can be the best employer that I can be and be the best husband and dad that I can be. And then balancing those pieces out because mm. there are we are achievers in some respect or form. And yeah. so yeah. being able to do both is very important for okay. sure. Okay, quick good. question. So <laughs> I guess my challenge and question, and, and again, generally speaking for men, is that our value is so enwrapped up in production, right? So when we produce, we're more valuable to society. When we produce... Uh, we feel more valuable for ourselves, for and, and whether that's family of origin or how we've been taught. Mm -hmm. But I want to just get to that because it's like, how do you extract out of that that my value is not about what I produce? And what Art originally said, you could do nothing and you're still loved by God. That yeah. makes no sense to me in a way. It's like, what? Yeah. you got to be doing something. No. Actually, you are loved completely as you are. So for for a guy that's struggling, how do you help him understand that you know, your value isn't about production, but well, your value is actually who you are. Yeah. If like, I step out of that, I would say Sabbath has been a big thing in okay. my own learning and journey. Yeah. Because when we talk about the principle of Sabbath, it's this idea of rest, of, of spending your time on a regular weekly uh, basis on things that give you life and help you just know who you are and that you are loved unconditionally mm. by God. Um, and then we work out of our rest instead of we rest from our work. So it's a different mindset. So we, we are able to work then and, and do our careers out of a place of rest and identity rather than we rest from all the things that work, def how work defines us. It's just a different way of looking at life, but it's very hard to put into place this idea of stopping 
and recognizing the world goes on. God doesn't need us to produce. He's got it. We can step back. It's not all about us. Get ourselves out of the center and find a refreshment and joy and just the things that give life to us mm. on that in a, in a regular rhythm. And, and that's a challenge because culturally it's hard to know how to stop and just to rest. Yeah. And that seems so counter because rest, some people equate to laziness. Mm -hmm. And again, rest equals like not, you know, unproductive. But what you're saying out of rest can come. It's Sabbath as resistance, some would say. Oh. And you're resisting that pressure and call of culture. You're saying, no, that is not what defines me. I'm defined by something else. Can you imagine if we all live that way? What, sounds, it's, what, it's, what society wonderful. and culture would be like <laughs> for us? My identity does not come through my work. Now, I know we know that, but sometimes we have these moments in life which makes us wonder, have I put my identity in my work? Is my identity founded by my nine to five job? Three years ago, I was about to start an 81 city speaking tour. However, a few weeks before this tour, what happened was my intestines, they tore open, causing me to be rushed to the hospital and have major surgery. And as a result of that, the entire tour was canceled. And in that moment, I realized I had put my identity in my work. In the Old Testament, we see this group of people, God's people in Egypt, and they're under the reigns of Pharaoh. And essentially what their nine to five job looked like, what their work looked like was to make bricks, was to move bricks, and were to stack bricks. Their identity literally came from the work that they did. So when God used Moses to set these people free, they had this reality check, realizing their identity can no longer be connected to the work that they did. And in that moment, God spoke to them. Exodus 19, verse 5. If you keep my commands, and if you keep my promises, it goes on to say, to me, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's like God is saying to these people, your identity is no longer founded in your work, in your nine to five, but your identity is now founded in me. So I want you to know that, that your identity is not founded through your work, but your identity comes from who you are in Christ. Okay, last takeaway for, let's say, a, a guy who really struggles. He's like tracking with us. He's like, yep, I'm there. What's our takeaway? What would you say to him, Chris, Matt, Art, uh, to encourage him on a first step to really work out this, that work is not my identity and there's way more about who I am? Art, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, number one, take a step back recognize the things that are around you be aware of of what's around you be content be thankful for the people around you be mindful of the people around you uh the the people at work that he's blessed you to or entrusted you to be his representative there for mm -hmm. and uh and your family your friends your neighbors take moments to be that and take moments to enjoy uh living out the fruits of the spirit mm. Like we don't do enough of that. Live out love and joy, mm. peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. 
self-control, live these things out on your day-to-day walk. And it doesn't matter what your task is that you're living out these sort of things. And then you become someone that someone can recognize as being more than just your role. Hmm. Good. Chris? I think I would say you're, to, to that person, maybe your best work hasn't even been completed yet. And to, and to be mindful that there's so much more to you than the job that you have right now. There's so much more to you than the title that you have right now. And if you're, and if you're looking for work, maybe you're somebody who's, you're, you're, you're looking for work right now. Um, maybe it means doing something that you don't love for a little while, but it doesn't change who you are as a person. Hmm. You know, your job doesn't change who you are as a person. So know who you are and know who you are in Christ and know who you are to the people who love you and let that be your motivating factor before anything else. Hmm. So good. And Matt, your final thoughts and takeaway? I think sometimes we work really hard because we're striving to have the affirmation and appreciation of others. And so it's not that that's bad, Mm -hmm. but maybe stepping back and saying, what if Jesus loves me unconditionally and it's not about what I produce and all the things I do, it's just he loves me, period. And then operate from that starting point. Powerful. Matt, that's powerful. Art, Chris, and Matt, such a pleasure being in your presence and learning from you and listening. Mm. I, my life has been enriched because of you three. I'm not getting emotional. I'm just saying it has been enriched, and thank you so much. Thank you also to Jay Warner Wallace uh, for his thoughts. And if you want to hear our full conversation, go to Spotify and Apple Podcasts on See Here Love. And for more resources, blogs, good words, show topics, head on over to seeherelove.com. And as you journey through extracting work as your only identity and find your true identity in Jesus, know that you're not alone. We're working through it too. We're with you. And as you do, know this, that you are seen, you are heard, and you are deeply loved by God. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. See, here, Love thanks our partners who make this show possible.